So if you have a Bible there, if you want to turn to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, we are continuing our recently begun study in that book. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at, we looked at this exact passage a couple Sundays ago, but we couldn't really finish it. There was a lot more in it uh, to go through. So we're going to look at verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. And I'll invite you, if you're able to do so, to stand for the reading of God's word. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14, give ear to the word of God. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar In vain, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you present as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, we have looked at this uh, a couple weeks ago, and we're going to kind of finish the passage, I hope, this morning. But uh, let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. O Lord, the the flowers fade and the grass withers, but uh, your word, O Lord, stands forever. And we thank you for it. We know that... Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask this morning that you would feed us uh, the manna from heaven from your word today. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Sanctify your saints and save the lost and glorify your name. For it's in Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, we looked at this again a couple weeks ago and. Uh, as I was finishing up, I realized we couldn't really get through everything in the passage and do it justice. We still might not be able to do that, but we'll try uh, to finish up this passage this morning. So this is sort of part two, so to speak, from the sermon a couple Sundays ago or so. Uh, we saw, if you were here at that time in this passage, that here in our text, as you probably picked up on as we were reading it, that uh, God had much to say to his people by way of rebuke, even rebuking the priests, you know, uh, I know this isn't the same exact kind of thing, but it's as if God is sending a letter. Imagine God sending a letter to the church in, in our modern context. He singles out basically the pastors. 
Like, it's for the whole church, but he kind of singles out the pastors, and that's not without reason. That's what he's doing when he rebukes the priests here. And what was he rebuking them for? Remember, the, the temple had just been rebuilt not that long ago, so they had reinstituted the sacrificial system, which should have been a thing of rejoicing for them, and yet God rebukes them and says they were worshiping him in such a way at the temple. At verse 6, he says they were despising his name. Like, he doesn't just say, you're a little off. You know, you got to clean this up a little bit. There's a few things you're doing that need to be kind of tweaked here and there. He's, he tells them, you're despising my name in verse 6. And then verse 7, the very next verse, he tells them that what they were doing was, in, in, in essence, despising God's table. You know, basically the altar, the place of sacrifice. They were, dis, they were despising it. In the way that they they were treating God's name and God's house, even his altar, with contempt in how they handled the worship and the sacrifices there in the temple. What what were they doing, at least outwardly, to, to manifest that? What were they doing wrong? Well, it was from the heart as well. But what they were doing was they were bringing uh, blind, lame and sick animals and injured animals as sacrifices. In other words, people would make these vows to God, and part of the fulfilling of that vow was to bring one from their flock. And the requirement was that any sacrifice you brought, a lamb or a goat or a bull, whatever it was, had to be without blemish. We saw at that time that that's a picture. The reason for that isn't just that God's picky, but the reason for that, it was, it was meant to be a picture of the Christ who was to come, who, who died for us as a lamb, what? Without blemish, the New Testament says. And so... They were despising God's name in his table and really, in, in some ways, we're going to see despising the Christ who was to come. As shocking as that is to think about it, how they handled the sacrifices there in the temple. Now, the good news is, which we didn't get into last time quite as much, but in the midst of these very difficult to hear rebukes that God gives to his people, God graciously includes prophecies of the gospel of Christ who was yet to come. It's really remarkable. Isaiah is this, really all the prophets are like this. Isaiah is the same way. Isaiah has some of the most stern and difficult rebukes you will ever read in Scripture to God's people. The first chapter alone, I encourage you to read that again sometime. God, God basically tells you things like, when you raise your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. I'm not listening. Imagine God saying that to you. you know, sometimes when we, we have trouble praying, we think God is like that. He tells them this is how he was going to treat them at the time. Why? Because they were mixing iniquity with solemn assembly. They were they were living a life of sin and then showing up at church like that makes it all okay. Well, a similar kind of thing was happening here with in, in the days of Malachi. But he gives us by his grace through Malachi these prophecies of the gospel of Christ and prophecies of the New Testament age that was to come. Even though his people were despising his name. And offering polluted sacrifices, God tells them that a day was coming when his holy name would be great among the nations. He says it twice in verse 11. And also he says that in every place, not just at the temple at the time, one day in every place incense would be offered in a pure offering in his name. Verse 11. It brings to mind the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, verses 21 to 24. Remember the the incident with the Samaritan woman at the well, and, and she meets Jesus, and Jesus really went out of his way in some ways. You know, the, they say, commentators say that, uh, you know, the straightest, what's the shortest path between two points? A straight line. 
Uh, but when it came to Samaria, what would the Jews do? They would take the long way. They would go, whoop, not going to Samaria. They're unclean. I'm going around. The Samaritans were kind of the half-breeds, and they had their own place of worship, which was not appropriate. God did not command it or permit it. But Jesus, rather than going around, what did he do? He took a straight line. He went right through and, and met the Samaritan woman at the well. All kinds of things to talk about with that. But this is what he says to that woman. He says, woman, John 4:21. woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain uh, nor in Jerusalem, these two places of worship that they had thought, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There's a lot you could unpack with that. With that. I won't do that right now. But one of the things he's saying is, you know, what, I know Paul's not here, but, you know, what's the main thing in real estate? Tony can say it. What? Three things, the most important things in real estate, location, 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 right? Did I get that right? Well, Jesus is saying just the opposite when it comes to worship. You think you have to worship in Jerusalem, or, or she thought they could worship on the mountain in Samaria, and he says, no, that's not, that's not the point. God is spirit. He is, as I told Luke last night, God's everywhere, and God is going to be worshipped everywhere at the coming of Christ. And so the worship of God was ultimately never really intended to be restricted to one narrow location on a map. It was never intended to be narrowly restricted to any one people on this earth, ultimately. And so now we no longer have an earthly temple. We no longer have the Levitical sacrificial system. We don't kill animals in church, thankfully, uh, because Christ himself has come and died and rose again. Christ, you might know the Bible says in the New Testament, Christ is the true temple. He is the one that the earthly temple was pointed to. It was a picture, a foreshadowing of himself. Remember the, the charge that they made against Christ when they crucified him? He said, tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it back up. And they said, you're going to build this building. And you know, It took 46 years to build Herod's temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days. And what does the gospel writer tell us Jesus was referring to? His own body. He was the temple. He is the place of sacrifice. He is the place of where God meets with man, with sinners. He is the place and the one who reconciles men to God. So he is the true temple. He is, as Hebrews tells us, the great high priest, the one to whom all those other priesthoods, uh, priests referred and pointed. And he is, of course, as John the Baptist says in John 1.29, Jesus is what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The book of Hebrews, so much there that helps us understand the Old Testament System there, but it says that you know by the blood of bulls and goats, it was impossible for those things to take away sin. Impossible. But what did they do? Their function was to point forward to Christ, who was to come. And so Jesus was the temple, is the temple, the high priest, and the Lamb of God. He is the the temple, the priest doing the sacrifice, and the sacrifice itself. All that is about Christ. And so the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, they were meant to point to Christ who has yet to come. And I think this helps explain why God was so offended by what the priests and the people were doing in mishandling those holy things in the temple. That shows us why it was so egregious to kind of monkey around with anything that God had prescribed in the temple, especially when it came 
to the sacrifices. You remember that story in the book of Numbers, Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire in the temple? And what happened? Well, they got some fire, didn't they? And God killed them. And God told their father, do not mourn for them. Don't put sackcloth and ashes because they didn't treat my name as holy. You know, and we, we read that. So maybe the first time you ever read that, if you haven't read that, read the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Maybe the first time you read that, I think I was the same way. You, I read it and I was like, that's not how I was like. But I was like, wow, God is really harsh. And sometimes we fall into this trap. It's wrong. And we say, well, that's how God was in the Old Testament. No, no, no. That is God. Does God change? No. And it's because God doesn't change that we are not consumed. Right. You know, we, we read Nadab and Abihu in the book of Numbers and God striking them dead. Then you read in the book of Acts, chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira. What happened to them? They messed around in worship and God struck them dead. They tried to bring. And ironically, they were bringing something of an offering. Right. Let's read that before we have the offering every Sunday. It'll scare everybody. But, uh, yeah, you better give enough or the, the young men are going to carry. Um, no, but God struck them dead, too, because they lied. They tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. They tried to lie to God. And so they were despising not just God's name in his temple and bringing these off these wrong sacrifices, but they were despising Christ himself. God is very particular about worship, even in the temple back then, primarily, I think, not just for the glory of his name, but because it represents Christ, who was yet to come. Now, as Jesus told that Samaritan woman at the well, God is seeking those who will worship him, what? In spirit and in truth, for that's how he must be worshipped. The unbelieving Jews in Malachi's day, uh, they were not fearing the Lord as they should have. Verse 6, God says, if I'm a master, where is my fear? I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? And it showed, I think, the, the way that they didn't fear God showed Itself and how they approach those sacrifices in the temple. But there was a day coming, Jesus says, because the name of our great king, who is the Lord of hosts, was going to be feared, not just in Jerusalem, but among all the nations. That's the great gospel promise that we find here in our text this morning. Now, a couple of Sundays, a couple of Sundays ago, we looked at this text first. Uh, we saw that things had gotten so bad. I mean, imagine God saying this to a church. That things had gotten so bad with the way they were handling the sacrifices that God said he wished somebody would just shut the doors. Verse 10. Oh, that there was a man here who would just shut the doors so they wouldn't offer sacrifices in vain or, or, or kindle fire on my altar in vain. He's talking about a sacrifice, a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering. He's saying, just stop doing it. You're wasting my time. You're wasting your time and mine. And he calls that offering vain, empty, pointless useless now think about that all those rebukes that's the context in which god gives this great gospel promise that's not what we would have expected but that's what god that's what god does that's the context in which god tells us ahead of time about the coming of christ the dawn of the new testament age and the place and time where god would see to it that there will be true worshipers of him everywhere not just in jerusalem or samaria in every place People would call upon the name of the Lord and glorify him. So one of the things this is teaching the Jews of, of that day was God was not beholden to the unbelieving Jews in Israel just because he had in his mercy and kindness brought to pass that the temple was rebuilt. You know, it's, it's one of the things you'll find in the prophets, especially Jeremiah and elsewhere, is 
you know, they, they, they kind of came to treat the temple as a lucky rabbit's foot. Or Jeremiah tells them, he says, you know, God says to Jeremiah, don't, don't listen to deceiving words saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were saying, as long as we've got this box back here with God in it, nobody's going to touch us. Well, they should have known better. That temple had just been rebuilt, which means what had just happened before that? It was torn down. They had to rebuild it. You know, that should have been a big hint that that's that's not how this works. You don't. Have, God doesn't fit in a box. God is spirit. Jesus says, John chapter four: Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter what kind of building essentially that you are in, even the temple. Uh, and so, you know, they you you could look at it this way: They probably were looking at it kind of like this. We have the temple. The temple is at the time, right? The one place where sacrifice was really authorized and prescribed by God for his people. And so they, you kind of get the feeling that they kind of thought, well, we've got this temple. If God wants worshipers, he needs us. You see, the, you see what's wrong with that? They thought God needed them, where the exact opposite was true. That not only did, not, did God not need them, that temple wasn't going to be a permanent structure, and God was going to be worshipped everywhere. And that was God's plan from before the foundation of the world that he would have worshipers and seek them out to worship him in spirit and in truth. So I'd like to look at a couple things from our text. The first thing is the greatness of God's name among the nations. The greatness of God's name among the nations. Starting in verse 11, God starts to give this prophecy through Malachi about the greatness of his name, not just in Israel, but among, he says, verse, verse 11, he says it twice, among the nations. Now, you know, these kind of things in our context, in our day, for most of us, if you've known the Lord for a good number of years, um, if you know your Bible, I have to stand perfectly in this one spot. Um, you know, if you've read your Bible enough, some of these things probably don't have the punch that they should have when you read them. You know, we're so used to seeing certain things uh, in, in God's word that they don't they don't really have uh, the impact they ought to have. But. What he says in verse 11, and he says it twice for good measure about the greatness of his name among the nations, it would have been shocking for them to hear. Malachi is a very short book, but it packs a wallop. And this, this, we read it and we think this is great news. But for them, for the unbelieving Jews at the time, this would have been quite a shock. It would have been a bucket of cold water splashed in their face. You know, I think it's impossible for us to appreciate in our day just how radical a change that this must have sounded like to the people of Israel at that time in Malachi's day. The Hebrew word that is translated nations in our text is, maybe you've even heard this word sometimes in, in colloquial Hebrew, uh, is goyim. And what that word means is it's the goya or the goyim were the, were the foreign heathen nations. He's talking about pagan Gentile nations. That would have been mind-boggling and mind-blowing for them to hear him say that. You know those unclean people out there all in every other part of the world except where you are? My name is going to be feared and be great all over the place, not just here. You don't have me in a box, in, in a way, is what he is, is saying. God is telling his people that they, his own covenant people, had been despising his name in how they went through the motions in worship, but... You know, kind of not to worry, the Gentiles, the heathen all over the world would one day in the not so distant future worship God acceptably 
through Christ and magnify the greatness of his name from the rising of its sun, verse 11, to its setting. I'm going to be worshipped, God says, and I'm going to be worshipped everywhere. My name is going to be great, not just here in this little strip of land, but all over the world from the rising of its sun, of the sun to its setting. That is a wonderful prophecy of the spread of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And one that had a great many foreshadowings in the Old Testament. You know, we act like, you know, Paul, Paul calls the church in the New Testament the mystery, the mystery of the church. But that doesn't mean it was not prophesied of in the Old Testament. Some people say that's true, that it's a mystery because it wasn't, wasn't foretold. It was foretold all through the Old Testament. The mystery was that they didn't quite get it. It was, it was something to it that they couldn't quite put the pieces together until God brought it uh, to pass. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, there God gave a promise of the Messiah to come to Abraham. And this is what he said. Genesis 22:18. he says, And in your offspring shall all the nations, same word, Goya, Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? He tells the father of the Jews, the father of the faithful, that in, in this, this seed, this offspring that he was going to give him, all the nations were going to be blessed in Christ. You know, remember when, he, remember when Abraham's name was changed to Abraham? Remember what Abraham means? Abram was his original name. God changed his name to kind of up the ante. Abraham means what? Av, or the A-B part, is father. Abraham means father of many what? Nations. You're not just going to have a few kids. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. That's how many kids you're going to have, your offspring you're going to have. Of course, he was talking about Christian, talking about the church. But he says, in, in your offspring or seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And Paul says in Galatians 3.16, Paul kind of interprets that for us. So we don't miss the point. Galatians 3.16, Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. He says, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promise that God made in Genesis 22:18, according to Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he interprets that, that word offspring is Christ himself. Genesis 22:18 is a prophecy of Christ who was to come, bringing blessings to all the nations on the earth. Now, ultimately, the promised offspring or seed of Abraham was singular and referred to Christ. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Isaiah 49, 6 is written of the Messiah who was then yet to come. And it says this, is it, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, He's going to do that, but that's not enough. It's too light a thing to do just that, as great as it is. Here he says, I will make you as a light for the nations. Same word, going. He's going to make his Messiah, the Christ, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Now, where is the gospel sent out in the Great Commission? In the book of Acts, in Matthew chapter 28. Go to all the make disciples of what? All the nations, baptizing them and teaching them. The gospel is to go out to the ends of the earth. That was prophesied all through the Old Testament and not just promised and, and spoken of in the new. Think about what a prom, a wonderful promise of the gospel 
and the spread of the gospel that we find here in the book of Malachi. It's kind of fitting that this is the last book of the Old Testament. And one of the things you see prophesied about is the spread of the gospel to the very ends of the earth through Christ. That's a, and, and this won't be the last problem. You know, this book is very short. You can read it in one sitting pretty easily, but we're going to find multiple prophecies of Christ who was to come throughout this little book of prophecy. And think about the implications of what God is telling his people here through Malachi. What, what is the spread of the gospel of Christ to all the nations on earth? What is that all about? What is God's goal in the gospel of Christ being spread to the ends of the earth? You might say, well, the salvation of sinners, and you wouldn't be wrong, Right. That is certainly a big, obviously a big part of it, especially for those sinners like us, that they have salvation in Christ. So the salvation of sinners by God's grace is obviously a very, very big part of it. But there's something, there's one thing in the spread of the gospel of the ends of the earth that's more important than that. That's important, not downplaying that at all. But what's more important even than the salvation of sinners, as great as that is? The glory of God. That's the point. The glory of God. Look again at verse 11. God says, for, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name, there it is again, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The greatness of God's name among the nations through faith in Christ, that's the point. That God would be worshipped and glorified and his name would be exalted in all the earth. That's the main goal of evangelism. That's the main goal of worship. That's the main goal of witnessing. That's the main goal of missions is that God's name might be magnified and be glorified. God's The greatness of God's name is the aim. It is the goal. It is the intended result of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. Some of you have maybe read something by John Piper uh, he has a couple quotes that always have stuck in my head, and this is one of them. I believe he said it often. I don't know, can't tell you exactly where the quote is, but he said it more than once. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist or missions exist because worship doesn't. And I think he's right. That's the main reason for missions and evangelism is that God might be magnified and worshipped everywhere, according to the prophesy here in Malachi. So we who believe in Christ, we who have been redeemed by his blood, by his grace, we are to do what we can to evangelize the lost, not just so that they can hear and believe unto salvation, as important as that is, and it is important, but also that they might come to worship and glorify the one true and living God. That God might be glorified and magnified, that his name might be great, among the nations. That's the reason for it. The glory of God has to be the ultimate motive for evangelism and missions. And so, you know, if you're doing it for that reason, if you're sharing the gospel, whether as individuals or bringing somebody to church to hear the gospel being preached, if you're doing that and doing that, that God might be glorified, there is no such thing as unsuccessful evangelism. If you're faithfully testifying to Christ and his gospel, and leaving the results to God, that is successful evangelism. That is pleasing in God's sight, and God is sure to use it to bring sinners to salvation in, through faith in his son and to make them worshipers. Because he told that woman at the well, God, he's not just hoping, he's seeking 
worshipers who will worship him in that way. God is the one doing the seeking, and he will bring them to repentance and faith by his power and by his grace. And so if, if you ever had uh, the opportunity to, to share the gospel, maybe you have done that, and maybe you haven't seen much outward fruit from it, uh, don't be discouraged by that. If you're doing that for God's glory, that is not unsuccessful. Uh, God will make his word bear fruit to the way he wants to do. You know, the very first question, if you're, if you've been a Presbyterian for any length of time and you've heard me and others quote the shorter catechism, probably the one question and answer that you know by heart or most of it is the very first one of the shorter catechism. It says that man's chief end, his main purpose for existing, man's chief end is what? It's, it's cheating. It's two in one, right? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that is in line with scripture. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I don't know about you, but eating and drinking usually don't feel like big things. And there's more to that context than that. Obviously, he was talking about food offered to idols and things, but Eating and drinking, what, just in case we missed the point, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so why should we as Christians and as a church, why should we support foreign and domestic missions? For the salvation of sinners, but for the glory of God. That's the main thing. Our, our goal in supporting missions should be that, that from the rising of the sun to its setting, God's name might be great among the nations. That's the, that's the goal for missions, that they might come to know Christ by faith and come to offer up a pure offering in his name. Worship is the goal. That is the goal of evangelism. And that will surely come to pass. God isn't leaving this to chance. He's not leaving this to accident. God, is, God doesn't cross his fingers. God makes his, his, his will come to pass. The counsel of his will all come to pass. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12 tells us of the end result of all this. The end result of all the evangelism and missions and the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Revelation 7 verses 9 through 12 tells us there is a great multitude that no one could number. This is a vision John sees uh, of, of the church in glory. A great multitude that no one could number. And what is that multitude uh, from? What is, what is it comprised of? It says from every nation, tribe, people and language. And what are they doing in that chapter? They are gathered to worship, standing before the lamb, wearing white robes and praising God for his salvation. That's, that's the end result and goal. And that's what's going to happen. And there's going to be a number, you know, it's, it's easy for us to look at this little church sometimes and when people are sick, it's even smaller, you know, and we think, Oh, God's not doing much here. Or, or you share the gospel and, you know, We've gone door to door at times and very little fruit that we could see from it, that kind of a thing. And it's easy to get discouraged. But look at that in Revelation 7, because that's what's going to happen. God is using his word, even if you don't get to see it. You know, Paul talks about, you know, I planted another water. God gave the increase. Like you may not be the one that waters and sees the plant sprout, but you might be the one that planted the seed. That's how God works. But God does work through the gospel. The gospel, Romans says, 116 says, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Doesn't, it doesn't always sound like the power of God. doesn't feel like the power of God, but it really, it really is. Well, the next thing is, is uh, weariness in worship. 
is that God talks about to the people, to the priests in our text. God turns our attention back to those in Israel now, including those priests who seem to be weary in worshiping and serving the Lord. And this is a theme we're going to see again in the book of Malachi as we go through the book. Look at verses 12 to 16. 12 to 16, he says, but you, so he just talked about his name being great to the ends of the earth, right? All the nations. But then he says, but you, you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. There's that word again. But you say, here it is, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Why? For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now here we see that again, he brings up the blemished offerings. Those blemished offerings were having another bad effect. Not only was God himself not pleased with those offerings, but ironically enough, the priests weren't either, probably for the wrong reason, right? In other words, the, what was happening? People were bringing these offerings. They were lame and blind, and, and sometimes you know, they were attacked by other animals, so they were already almost dead. All these things that were blemishes, they brought them to the temple to offer them to God. Remember he says in the previous verses, you know, try to offer that to your governor and see how that goes. He's not going to receive you favorably. You're not going to get, you know, gifts from him and favors from him. He's going to throw you out, probably. But you're going to bring that to me? That's really what God, what God is saying there. But what we're seeing here is that the priests themselves were the ones allowing that to happen. What should the priests have done when people brought those blemished animals? They should have done what Jesus did and tossed some tables over. They should have said, no, out. You know, if you're not going to bring a, a, a righteous sacrifice, then get out. You're wasting your time and mine and you're offending God. Bring us back what you vowed that you're giving to God or don't bring anything. You made a vow to God. Keep it. But they weren't doing it. But why were the priests dissatisfied with those offerings after they let them do them anyway? Because they're the ones that that was kind of their pay. How did the priests get their food? They didn't remember the allotment of the land. Which tribe didn't get any land? The Levites. What was their inheritance? You might think, well, that doesn't sound fair. They're getting, they're getting gypped. You know, they're getting shortchanged by God in this, in this allotment. If you read that text, they get God. God is their inheritance. God is their allotment. But for their daily material needs, how were those supplied? You guessed it. By the sacrifices, the animals and whatnot that people brought, parts of those animals were given to the priests. That was how they put food literally on their tables. And so imagine this, people bringing these lame and blind and blemished and attacked and sick animals in. What's the priest supposed to do? Well, he shouldn't have offered it. He shouldn't have used it. But that was also his pay. And part of you wants to say, well, whose fault is that? It was their fault, you know, ultimately. But they but they looked at this as, as being a wearisome thing. They despised the table for the wrong reason. They despised it because they, well, they were supposed to get out of it. It wasn't very, wasn't very good. And so they said, God tells them in verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it. In other words, they looked at what their, their pay was, sort of, and kind of turned their nose at it. 
this is why I serve the Lord. This is why I'm serving in the temple. That's what God is telling them. They're essentially disgruntled with their pay. And so what was the result? They found they found serving God to be a weariness and snorted at what they were receiving. You know, it's kind of like a child at dinner time refusing to eat his supper because he wants something else. That never happens in our house, right, Luke? Nobody ever turns their nose away at dinner and says they want something else. It's, that's what the priests were doing. They were having a temper tantrum. They were saying, I don't, I don't like this. I, they went to the most. They didn't stop serving, but they weren't serving from the heart. Now, let me tell you, I'll be the first to tell you, if I may, that the ministry of the gospel uh, is hard work. Uh, it's hard work, and it can be an exhausting work. In fact, in some ways, you know, if you're not exhausted at some point, at least at some times, you're probably not doing it right. You're probably not doing enough. But a servant of God may at times, it's been said, tire from the work. A servant of God must never tire of the work. Tired from it is fine. Tired of it is not fine and should not be the case. The unbelieving Israelites in Malachi's day, even the priests were tired of worshiping God because they seemed to think that they deserved better from God. They thought, I think, that as long as they went through their motions, that God was obliged to bless them and nothing could be further from the truth. As we see in our text and throughout this this book. And so I'll ask this morning, you know, it's hard for us to kind of compare apples to oranges in some ways and put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak. But do you ever find yourself feeling that way? You ever find yourself and you never never say this kind of stuff out loud to anybody. I don't think we all have a filter when you get older. Right. But, you, you know, why am I serving God? Look at what's going on in my life. Look what's going on in our country. What's the use? Why do we keep doing this? You ever feel like that? Maybe at times uh, you do. Are you tempted to think, what's the use in trying to serve God and follow in his ways? That's something we'll see in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, again, later on in this very book. And so I hope this text will be an encouragement to you not to feel that way. Uh, We should not certainly feel that God is obliged because we did something here. You know, we don't write checks and put them in the offering bag in order that God might do what we want. God is not an idol to be manipulated. Uh, we serve God to glorify him, and he very often does bless us. And as Gertie says, we say, how are you? What does she always say? Better than I deserve. We all have it way better than we deserve, and we need to thank God and worship him for it and never feel like God is somehow beholden to us because we meet here and do the things, the right things, and all these things that we do. And so let us never treat God like an idol to be manipulated for our own purposes. Let us, by the grace of God, seek to bless and glorify his name at all times, And even as our opening call to worship says, serve the Lord with gladness, be glad to do so and not find it to be wearisome. Uh, Let us glorify and bless his his name at all times for his steadfast love to us in Christ. Let us worship and serve God in spirit and in truth from the heart and do so for God's glory, the glory of his great name, and not just so that we can get a blessing out of it. Let us offer unto God pure sacrifices, as has been prophesied here even in our text, Pure sacrifices, and let's give God our best rather than cheating him. For he is, as he says, a great king, and his name will be feared among the nations. Verse 14. Now, if we wait to give God our best until we see his material and worldly blessings, we will have cheated both God and ourselves. For he has already given us his best in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our salvation from our sin. And in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, we have been blessed 
he says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1, 3. You might not always feel that way, but he says in Christ you have everything. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so if we spend our time thinking on those things, all of the many blessings that God has given us, those blessings that we possess in Christ by faith, that will furnish us with abundant cause to praise and glorify the great name of God for his grace. May the Lord Jesus Christ revive us by the work of his spirit within us that we might more and more love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because he loved us first. That we might seek to glorify his great name in all, the, in all things and that we might learn to fear and worship him in a way that glorifies him. Amen.